This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. The Pope has said that gay couples can now be blessed. You might have seen this in the headlines. The top dog of the Catholic Church reverses the Vatican's stance on this issue. It seems massive. It's creating a lot of headlines. But what exactly does it mean for young queer Catholics? And what do other church leaders think about it? We're going to be getting into this issue with an expert from the Vatican who will be joining us from St. Peter's Square very soon. Also coming up, the warnings from Pacific leaders about Australia's voice referendum result. What are they saying? We'll fill you in on the international fallout from the referendum and what we can expect. First, though. Hack. We're sorry. This is a vintage product. Service is no longer available from Apple. On Triple J. Oh, we've all been there. Your laptop dies. It's kind of annoying because it's not that old. Not too bad, though. You think you'll take it in, get it fixed, get it looked at. But then they tell you, nah, it's not really worth getting fixed. Or maybe they can't because the parts aren't available anymore. It's obsolete. That's what they've classified it as. Look, that's what's happened to the first generation of Apple Watch. You might have seen this in the news. The company says it's no longer going to repair them. Even if you bought the high range one, the 18 karat gold one that costs more than $20,000, even that one can't be repaired anymore. You've got to buy a new one. Has this happened to you? Have you had some tech repair nightmare? Probably not with the 18 karat gold watch. You can probably afford a new one in that case. But I'm keen to hear because I know everyone's got some horror stories. Message in 0439 why is it so hard to get things repaired? Well, let's ask Gareth Downing. He's with the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network. He's with us now. Hey, Gareth, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. So Apple's saying its watch released back in 2015, no longer eligible for hardware service. Providers can't order parts for it. It's on this vintage list. Is that a really common thing to happen with tech? Yeah, so it's, it's quite common for consumers to face difficulties in getting older devices repaired. Often it's hard to get parts or to get repairs undertaken by the developers and manufacturers of those devices. So yes, it's very common. How big of a problem is tech repair in, in Australia? Like, is this something that you hear a lot about from consumers? This is something we hear a lot from consumers about. Unfortunately, getting access to repair, particularly for older devices, is a real challenge. Often it's hard to get device repairs undertaken by any party except for the manufacturer. Um, so often it's hard for consumers to get affordable repairs from their preferred repairer when it's convenient for them. And the reason why it's hard to get them repaired is because what, there's no parts available or because it's avoiding some kind of warranty conditions? So it's actually quite a few different uh, issues tied together. So in Australia, there's no formal legislative right to repair, which means that consumers actually don't have a right per se to get their device repaired from a repairer of their choice. What that means is access to parts and more importantly, access to the information required to complete a repair is determined by the suppliers of that product. So you have to go back to a manufacturer, and that can also be quite tricky um, for those independent repairers because they can't necessarily access the information that they need to repair your, your device. So this right to repair movement that's happening, and you just mentioned in Australia, we don't have like really specific laws around that. What's it like in other parts of the world? 
So in other parts of the world, there are much stronger consumer protections around these issues and there's um, a great deal more on offer in terms of um, what your consumer rights are to get repairs undertaken. I think importantly, a lot of the issues that we see relate back to getting access to that design information, getting access to the information required to, to repair something. And so there are quite extensive protections available in other parts of the world. And importantly, these are things like exemptions to, to copyright rules. Is tech the main issue here or is it other companies as well? Like obviously we're hearing a lot about Apple products, uh, people messaging in uh, with their complaints and worries about that. But what other kind of areas are affected? Yeah, so it goes well beyond just communications and and telecommunications devices. Um, Historically, this has been a real challenge in the automobile space um, where it's been hard to get access to the information required. There have been reforms in that area to make it easier for repairers. But broadly speaking, there's quite a lot of, there's a bit of a movement internationally on these issues because it is wide ranging uh, across quite a few different consumer product categories. Yeah, well, we're getting a lot of messages on this one on Instagram as well. Steph says, I went to a big tech company for a charging port repair. They said it would never work again. I'd have to buy a new phone altogether. I asked him to show me, he plugged it in and it still worked, still using the same phone three years later. <laughs> Maddie says, I paid $500 to get my keyboard fixed, laptop to never turned on again. Someone else, it's expensive as hell to fix anything because they make it near impossible to disassemble things without breaking them. And someone else on the text line says, planned obsolescence is real and Apple is one of the biggest offenders. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Gareth Downing from the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network about the right to repair, why it's so hard to get your tech fixed. Gareth, there was this big Productivity Commission report handed down a couple of years ago. What did it recommend and where are we up to with that? So, so far, uh, we are waiting on those recommendations to be implemented. I think there's been some work in this area, but it's fair to say that there's a lot more that could be done. Aiken's very supportive of the recommendations of the, that report being implemented because we see it as you know, pretty straightforward steps that can be taken to make device repair much more affordable, much more available for consumers. So, so what kind of things would you like to see happen? So, for example, within uh, the recommendations, there is a specific recommendation around defining a copyright exemption that would allow you to have access to relevant information without breaching copyright requirements. Does that mean, sorry, just to get my head around that, does that mean people would be able to access information that would enable them to either repair the product themselves or have a third party repair a look at it? Yeah, so that's right. So clarifying, um, you know, the exemptions in that space would allow for independent third-party repairers and potentially individuals to organise repairs of their their devices. Have things got better over the last few years? Like since there was a lot of attention put on it, there was that Productivity Commission report, have companies been taking active steps to make things a little easier for consumers? So I think um, companies are certainly starting to look at this area a lot more. And I think there is, you know, credit should be given where it's due on the part of industry that there's been a lot of action in this space, particularly in the context of e-waste and environmental concerns. So there's a much greater focus now on device sustainability 
um, which is obviously quite positive from our perspective and, and positive from a consumer standpoint. Um, but I still think there are you know, further steps that we can take in this area. So it's a lot of opportunity um, for improvement, um, but it is fair to say there has been some improvement in this space. Is there any advice that you have for consumers who might be out there and struggling to have something repaired? I mean, I had a situation the other day where I took a laptop, not very old, to the provider and said, hey, there's an issue here. They said, sorry, we can't repair it. It's not worth it. It's too old or the rest of it. But then I did take it to a third party. They were able to fix it right up really cheaply. What would be your advice to consumers in similar situations? Yeah, so I think my first piece of advice for consumers is always to remember that you have rights under the Australian consumer law where you have a, a product that is defective. So you can seek a repair or replacement or a refund for defective products through the consumer guarantees set out in the Australian consumer law. So there is actually a statutory guarantee framework that works in addition and supersedes in some instances any of the contractual warranties that are provided to you. So that's something always you know worthwhile being aware of that will apply irrespective of whether a company advises you of it. In addition to that, I think the key piece of advice that we would give consumers is always shop around. Um, If you're finding it hard to get repair uh, undertaken by a particular provider, be mindful that there are other independent providers out there who can potentially assist you. You know, have a look at what's available and what suits you and, and, and your price point in terms of getting repairs undertaken. Well, we definitely appreciate that advice. People are really connecting with this uh, story. Obviously had so many uh, nightmare situations trying to get their tech fixed. Gareth Downing from the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And still heaps of messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, anyone today claiming planned obsolescence is wrong? Phones are tougher, more waterproof and more repairable than ever. Someone else says, I used to work at one of the big tech stores and one of the KPIs for the tech support team was how often they get their customers to buy new instead of repair. Someone else says, security Hardware has security flaws and they can't be fixed. Recycle, don't repair. That was from Matt in Melbourne and someone else. I previously worked for JB Hi-Fi and the training around repair versus replacement is poor. The abuse we copped from customers was terrible and no help is provided by head office. One more, Nathan in Sydney says consumers are at fault too. They keep buying that brand even though they've failed them. Hack. If the Australian people choose not to write that injustice, it's going to reflect badly on Australia in general for us because we're going to think, why aren't you trying to fix this obvious long-standing historical problem? On Triple J. So the voice referendum's just over a week away and as the yes and no campaigns keep hammering home their messages, attention's already turning to what happens after the vote. Whether it is yes, whether it's no, the impact of those results, not just here in Australia, but also overseas. We've seen political leaders, even celebrities weigh in on this. You might have seen MC Hammer tweeted about it recently, but we've also been hearing from our neighbours in the Pacific. The Pacific's top diplomat has said Australia's credibility in the region will be bolstered if Australia votes in favour of The Voice. Another politician in Vanuatu recently said voting no would be a blow to our relationship. So how will the voice referendum results affect Australia's reputation and relationship with the rest of the world? Well, someone who has been looking into this is Stephen Jedgetts. He's the ABC's foreign affairs reporter. He's with us now. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on Hack. No problem. Thanks for having me. Are countries in the Pacific keeping a really close eye on this referendum debate and obviously the result? Yeah, I I think they are. I mean... 
How close an eye is honestly difficult to say. Um, and when you talk about countries, well, you know, there are different ways you could frame it, right? If you're talking about countries as in governments in Pacific Island countries, yeah, I, I think they definitely are. There's a lot of instinctive sympathy from Pacific Island uh, elites. Um, when it comes to Indigenous Australia, um, it's something that they watch very closely. Uh, and so I think that the referendum is something that, yeah, they will absolutely keep a very close eye on. And the result, one way or another, will shape their attitudes about Australia, either by, you know, further betting down some of their suspicions about Australia or perhaps uh, defying some of those suspicions. As for the broader public, look, it's really difficult to say. There has been a bit of commentary on social media, but not much. There's simply no way to really in any practical way measure how closely you know punters for lack of a better word in the pacific are or are not watching this debate but um i suspect that from a political perspective the main thing that uh, australian officials and politicians are, are most preoccupied with is what impact this might have on australian foreign policy in the region and 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 the way that pacific decision makers cultural leaders uh, and other leaders might be uh, looking at this result so what have we heard so far from political leaders diplomats in the pacific Look, very little, really, really little. And that's, in a sense, not surprising. Pacific leaders and, and officials don't tend to wade into domestic politics in other countries. Uh, and just typically, they're not, uh, you know, very uh, openly, you know, forceful, if you like, in their language uh, when it comes to sensitive issues across the region. That includes sensitive issues like this in Australia. Uh, but over the last week or so, we have started to see a few more glimmers of debate. So specifically, we saw at the beginning of the week a, a gentleman called Ralph Reganvanu, who's a very well-known politician in in Vanuatu. Incidentally, he may just be the next Prime Minister of Vanuatu. We won't find out until Friday as a result of a, of a spill there in their parliament. But he took to social media basically saying that uh, Australia's uh, decision would be watched very closely, uh, that a no result would be uh, something that would really shock and dismay um, people in Vanuatu, uh, that a yes vote would reinforce and, and really help Australia's reputation in the region, uh, and a no vote would just reinforce negative attitudes, uh, including amongst the, the general population. He was probably the first sort of fairly prominent political figure in the Pacific, um, you know, currently involved in politics to, to wade in. Then this morning, we had a, another contribution from a gentleman called Henry Puna. Now, he is the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, which is basically the top regional body in the Pacific. He's sort of the Pacific's top diplomat, if you like. And he was a bit more hesitant than Ralph, Ralph Reganvanu when he was asked at a press conference uh, he, about the voice. He, he didn't really want to wade in, um, but he did in the end decide that he would and said basically uh, that uh, a yes vote would really strengthen Australia's credibility uh, in the region uh, and uh, in the in the international forum more bre more broadly. Uh, so again, it's an interesting uh, intervention. Clearly, Henry Puna was weighing his words carefully. He was also quick to stress that in the end, this was a decision for Australian voters and that the Pacific couldn't, quote, interfere. But he left listeners in no doubt that uh, pe people in the Pacific who hold positions of power and responsibility are very much hoping for a yes vote, uh, that a yes vote is likely to reinforce positive perceptions of Australia and that a no vote will probably reinforce negative perceptions. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jejetz about the voice referendum, the fallout that we could see internationally, whatever the result is. 
Steve, what about our own politicians, diplomats here in Australia? Is there any idea of if they're gearing up for whatever the result may be and how we may be perceived overseas? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to overstate it. Outside of the Pacific, for what it's worth, I'm not convinced that this will have a big impact on Australia's uh, international standing, at least when it comes to the day-to-day realities of foreign policy. Um, I think it could well be significant in shaping some of those deep-set ideas about what Australia is or is not. Um, and so it could be consequential in a more subtle way over the long term. Uh, but I don't think there will necessarily be any huge foreign policy ramifications for Australia. But even that prospect of Australia's sort of image being shaped in a, in a poor or in a damaging way over the long term is enough to exercise the minds of diplomats and uh, officials here in Canberra. Uh, and yes, I'm, I'm very confident. In fact, I know for a fact that there's already quite a bit of work underway in various government departments uh, to basically prepare diplomats across the region in the event of either a yes or a no vote. Um, they're, uh, they're preparing in both ways. And I think there is a level of anxiety about the way that this might refract on Australia in the Pacific in particular. Now, interestingly, the federal government was making the argument a few months ago uh, via Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, that one of the reasons Australians should vote yes is because a no vote would look uh, terrible uh, for, for Australia, that it could really damage our reputation. Uh, but interestingly, that argument has faded away over the last three or four months. No government frontbencher has raised it, perhaps not coincidentally. That, that coincides with the fact that, uh, that the support for the, for the yes vote has been dropping pretty precipitously in the polls over that period. Um, and uh, Peter Dutton, the opposition leader, was out today essentially saying that, yeah, there, there, there were negative repercussions potentially or at least risks for Australia to a no vote. He, though, was keen to lay the blame at the, the feet of the Prime Minister saying it was all Anthony Albanese's fault for pursuing a change to the Constitution, which, you know, in his words is, you know, the largest uh, that uh, has been seen for some time, that's risky, that's permanent. Uh, therefore, he says the Prime Minister has to wear the blame for any negative repercussions for Australia's international standing. Well, whatever the result, I'm I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about, you know, the repercussions, the reaction overseas in the weeks ahead. We appreciate your insight into this foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hack. There could be a major shift of policy at the Vatican. On Triple J. The Catholic Church estimates that more than a billion people in the world are Catholic. So that's more than 17% of the world's population. And even though we know the church's influence has been declining in many parts of the world over the past few decades, it obviously still holds a huge amount of influence. So when the Pope, the leader of the Catholic Church, says something, people listen. And what he said this week has surprised some, it's made some people really happy, it's maybe upset some others. Pope Francis has said that he'd be open to the Catholic Church blessing same-sex couples. But that doesn't mean the Pope's throwing up the rainbow flag at the Vatican, because he did add that the Church still considers same-sex relationships objectively sinful and won't recognise same-sex marriage. So what is the significance of all this, and, and why has this announcement been made now? Well, Christopher Lamb is a Vatican expert. He joins us from Rome. Christopher, thank you very much for, for coming on Hack. Well, thank you very much for having me. So what, to be here. what exactly has Pope Francis announced here and why has he done it now? 
Well, so Pope Francis has, uh, as you pointed out in the introduction, signalled an openness to uh, the church blessing same-sex couples. Um, and he's done so in a reply to a group of cardinals who are very opposed to that idea and who sent him a series of questions challenging him to clarify the church's position on X, Y, and Z. So I think the wider perspective that people need to be aware of is that within the Vatican, there is a real battle over the future of the church. And Pope Francis, as I'm sure you, you, you will know, has been someone who has tried to take the church in a more open and outward-facing direction. And so what he's effectively done with his response to the cardinals is to say that there are ways in which the church can bless uh, couples, as long as it's not confused with uh, marriage, which, of course, the Catholic Church teaches is between a man and a woman. So I think what Francis is doing is changing the tone and the whole conversation around this topic. You also have to remember that even a few years ago, um, there was really some very anti- uh, or negative stuff about homosexual gay people being put out from the church. So I think what Francis is doing is very significant in the sense he's changing the language and the tone of the conversation. So do we know how the blessing would work? Were there any details, whether it would be a blessing of same-sex couples, whether it would be a blessing of their union or of just them individually? Well, Francis has actually left things quite open to the discernment and the judgment of uh, individual priests. Uh, And I think that's important because what Francis has emphasised time and again is that you can't really have a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to to, to these matters. There does need to be a certain amount of of flexibility. So I think what he he is saying, though, is that he's not advocating a... Uh, a sort of huge ceremonial blessing of, of of couples in you know basilicas and cathedrals etc but he's saying that there can be uh, a consideration there can be a way in which uh, uh, two people can have their union blessed uh, and I think there are priests who are already doing that in in many uh, situations if if a committed couple come to a priest and say we want our union, blessed and recognized. We want God to bless that. Who is the church to stand in the way and say, no, we can't do that? Now, of course, there are people in the church who say, no, you can't, you, you can't bless it. But what Francis is saying is, how can the church, how can church leaders say that God is not going to give help and support and blessing to a couple? I mean, I imagine that this is facing a lot of resistance uh, within the Vatican by some, whether it be cardinals, other church leaders. Is Pope Francis seen as someone who is reforming the church and making it more progressive? Like, what's the reaction been to this within the church? Well, there's obviously some negative reaction to it. Um, Now, as I'm speaking to you, Uh, In St. Peter's Square, which I'm overlooking at the moment, there is a mass about to start for the beginning of a synod, which is a massive gathering of um, leaders from the church from across the world to discuss the future of Catholicism, to discuss where things need to be going. Uh, And so what Francis has, has tried to do, I think, during his pontificate, is not so much 
uh, issue edicts saying we're going to change X, Y, and Z, but to try and set the conditions, set the table for reform and renewal to happen. So to open the process of change, that actually is something that, that, that can have really profound, long-lasting effects because what, what the Pope is doing, trying to is set about an irreversible change that is not simply dependent on him because, of course, Francis is 86 years old. He, you know, we don't know how much longer he's got left. Another Pope could come in and try and turn the clock back. What Francis is trying to do is set about irreversible reforms. And I mean, you mentioned that synod, that meeting that's happening now about the future of the church, Christopher. Do you expect a lot to come out of that reforms that the church are hoping is going to help it claw back some of its influence and, and power in the world? Well, I, I don't think it's about trying to claw back influence and power, but I think it's about trying to restore credibility. And I think the way you do that, or the way Francis believes you do that, is by listening. And so this process has been all about listening to the whole church or trying to listen to the whole church, trying to, to listen to young people, uh, trying to uh, hear from those who feel the church isn't a home for them. So that's what he's, that's what he's trying to do. And that, I think, is the, is the basis for the reform and the change. And that in itself is a reform. Now, there are certain issues on the table, for example, the role of women, whether to ordain women deacons, how to include same-sex couples better into the church. All of those questions are on the table. I expect them to be discussed. I expect there to be some pretty fiery disagreements. And I think there'll be proposals for how to take the discussion forward. I don't expect this synod to answer all the questions. It's got you know three and a half weeks in which to, to discuss these matters. It's probably not long enough. But what we're witnessing is a very important event that is opening the way to the future. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. There'll be certainly a lot of things discussed. Uh, we appreciate your take on all of this. Thank you very much for chatting to us from Rome, uh, for, from St Peter's Square, Vatican expert Christopher Lamb. Appreciate you coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Let's get a bit of a local perspective on this now. With us is the Reverend Dr. Peter French. He's an Anglican priest in Victoria. And I wanted to check in what the situation's like in Australia, not just within the Catholic Church, but obviously the Anglican Church as well. Peter, thanks for joining us on Hack. Oh, you're very welcome. It's good to be with you. What is the Anglican Church's stance on same-sex marriage blessings here and, and around the world? Well, that's a, a very good question. Um, around the world, uh, there's a variety of, of different uh, perspectives and uh, practices. So the Anglican Communion comprises of some 80 million members, um, a global communion, and it's divided up into provinces and dioceses, which are autonomous, that is, they can make um, many of their own decisions, um, unlike the, um, the Catholic Catholic Church's um, structure. So there are um, parts of the Anglican Communion um, that will um, bless and marry same-sex couples, and, and there are parts of the Communion uh, that do not. Um, here in Australia, uh, there are 23 um, dioceses, and two of those um, have um, had um, same-sex um, marriages uh, in their... Um, in their diocese since uh, 2020, when um, the appellate tribunal, which is the highest court for the Anglican Church in Australia, uh, decreed that there was 
no reason to prevent um, diocese choosing to allow for the marriage of same-sex couples. And with blessings, uh, you know, for people that maybe aren't within the church, don't understand exactly what that entails, what is a blessing? What does it mean to, to bless a person or a couple? Yeah, well, that's it's a really good it's a really good question, and sometimes these things get um, mixed up. So, you know, the difference between blessing um, a a couple and marrying a couple, I think it's important to to draw that distinction. So, um, we bless uh, priests bless things that already are. So, you might uh, be in the practice of blessing a meal. Uh, you might bless someone when they are. Are sick or in need, um, we we bless the dying. Um, we bless um, couples who have already been married. Um, when we preside at a at a wedding, um, we're actually doing the the marrying. Um, so there's a there's a big difference there. So in this case, um, the church has been asked to consider whether or not they would bless those who had already been married um, in a civil union here in Australia. Well, look, it's definitely something that affects a lot of people, a lot of young people who yes. are in the church. Uh, and so they're interested in any developments uh, that we hear mm. about, whether it's within the Catholic Church, within the Anglican faith. Yep. We appreciate your take on this, Reverend Dr. Peter French. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And on the text line, someone's messaged in saying, I believe the Pope is trying to appeal to contemporary Catholic families of same-sex couples who are deeply religious and it provides a sigh of relief. Look, we'll keep you updated. If there are big announcements out of that synod at the Vatican in terms of the future of the church, uh, we'll make sure you keep you across it. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.